Turn to Colossians chapter 2. And I guess if you were to give a title of this message or the passage tonight, it would be something like this, Christ is all you need. He's all you need. That's what, in fact, that's what the book of Colossians is about, not just this chapter. And Paul's repeated this theme again and again and again throughout chapters 1 and 2, and he can't seem to emphasize it enough. Why is he doing this? Well, it seems like somebody was trying to persuade them contrary to what uh, the gospel of Christ was. Colossians 2, 4, he says, I say this so no one will delude you with persuasive argument. It's like someone was trying to argue them into another philosophy. It looks like someone was trying to plunder them as if they were gaining spoils from war. Colossians chapter 2, 8 says, See to it no one takes you captive, like a, like a, uh, a, war, uh, a captive in war, through philosophy and empty deception. So we need to be on our guard against this man-made philosophy, he says in chapter 2, verse 8. Be on your guard. See to it. Beware that you're, you're not sucked up into this man-made philosophy, this religion, this teaching. And then the end of verse 8 draws a line in the sand when it says these words. Be careful of this philosophy because it's not according to Christ. <laughs> and that's the, the bottom line, right? It's not according to Christ. So since that is the case, Paul in verses 9 through 15 details why it is we need no other philosophy or teaching than the one that we have, which is according to Christ in the scriptures. All we need is Christ. No one else will do. Nothing else will do. And he says, he gives us here actually five reasons that he lists which describe why Christ is the remedy against uh, false teaching and why he's all we need. First of all, he says there is fullness, there is spiritual fullness in Christ. And we looked at this last week, verses 9 and 10, there is spiritual fullness in Christ. He says in verses 9 and 10, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Uh, verse 9 teaches that all that God is, Christ is also. Christ is, is God. He's God in the flesh. Christ is deity. And, that's, and, and even though he was God, he was still, uh, he came in the flesh in bodily form. So he's fully God and fully man. And verse 10 shows us that in Christ we have been made full or we have been filled. Uh, scripture says his divine power is granted to everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have all we need in Christ. He's sufficient for all our needs. We're complete in Christ, it says in Verses 9 and 10 here. So we need no other outside philosophy to, to enhance our lives in any way at all because there is spiritual fullness in Christ. Let's read the rest of the verses together, verses 11 to 15. He says, and in, and in him, notice the flow. Well, let's start verse 9 again. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So first of all, we see in verses 9 and 10, there is spiritual fullness in Christ. Secondly, we see in verse 11, there is spiritual circumcision in Christ. Spiritual circumcision in Christ. 
Now, when, when you see that word circumcision mentioned, it could be that there's a Jewish element beginning to be introduced that, that came from this philosophy that was coming into Colossae, although some think that it has to do with asceticism, which is the practice of denying yourself different things. But we know that circumcision for Israel in the Old Testament was a big deal. The Lord required all the male children in Israel to be circumcised. It was a sign of the covenant between God and Israel. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. Read verses 10 to 14 about this. Genesis 17, 10 to 14. It says there, the Lord says to Abraham, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So you can see the language here is very plain. It's very definite. The outward right here of circumcision was an obligation to the community of Israel, not an option. It's something they had to do. But even in the Old Testament, the Lord didn't just want this outward sign of circumcision, but he wanted the inward heart of obedience because later on, Moses says in Deuteronomy 10:16, he says, circumcise your heart, stiffen your neck no longer. And then Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, uh, Moses speaking of a future time in Israel's history after the nation has been regathered. And he says here, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. You can't love the Lord your God with all your heart unless your heart has been circumcised. What God ultimately wants is not this outward sign, but he wants, uh, he wants a heart change. But the rite of circumcision was the Old Testament command of the nation of Israel. And understand that though, that though this physical circumcision brought a person into covenant relationship with God, it did not guarantee a regenerate heart. It doesn't mean that everybody is saved in Israel as a result of that. Now, as you cross over in the New Testament era, a problem develops. Acts 15.1. you got some guys going around teaching that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved, they said. It became a big controversy. And not only that, they said, uh, it says in verse 5 of Acts 15, it's necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses, they went on to say. In other words, if you're not keeping this Old Testament law, you're not even saved, they said. But Peter stands up and gives them a very simple lesson in theology. This is the kind of theology teacher I like. He says this, We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's a good, that's a good theology teacher right there. Very simple and to the point, right? We're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. So the apostles made it clear we're not saved by Old observing Old Testament law, but by the grace of God. And then Paul picks up the thought again in Romans 2. He says in verses 28 and 29, he is not a Jew who is, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, he says. Circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but it's from God. 
And so the Lord says it's not about the physical, it's about the spiritual, right? That's what's really important. It's not about outward observance of the law, but it's about the heart. It's not about, the, about men, it's about God. It's not about the law, it's about the spirit. And he makes all those comparisons. So you might think, well, that's, that's well and good for the Jews, but the believers in Colossae were by and large Gentiles, weren't they? So why all this talk of circumcision? It's because every believer, Jew or Gentile, is circumcised in Christ spiritually. And that's what Colossians 2.11 is saying. I know this sounds strange, Colossians 2.11. This is what Colossians 2.11 is saying, spiritual circumcision. In fact, the believers in Colossae had undergone spiritual circumcision. And it was in Christ. It says it's in him. And we've noticed it happens repeatedly in these verses that whatever takes place in salvation takes place in Christ, in Christ alone. It's in him, right? It never happens apart from Christ. It always happens in connection with Christ. The believer's life is always united with Christ. It's because we're in union with him, right? Once again, talking about what we say the word was, our incorporation with Christ. We're identified with him. Our, our, as followers of Christ, our lives are initiated, begun with Christ, and they continue with Christ, always revolving around him. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is John 15, 3. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing at all. And never forget that Christ is the vine and we are the branches in the vine, and we're always locked into him. We're always united with him. It's a great, that's a comforting thought if you think, about, think of it that way. We're always locked into that vine always drawing our, our strength, our sustenance for him. We're not our own. We belong to him. We live in him. We're in union with him. That's how close our relationship with is with Christ. Now, notice in verse 11, he says, this is a, in Colossians 2, 11, this is a circumcision made without hands. Physical circumcision is a work of man, but spiritual circumcision is a work of God. It's the, it's, Paul said in Romans 2, 29, it's by the spirit. It's the work of God. Only God can change the heart. Only he can do the spiritual work that is necessary in a person's life. And this takes place at the moment of salvation, this idea of spiritual circumcision. It's, and there's no human hands involved at all. can't be brought about by human ingenuity. Uh, it's only accomplished by the great physician, right, who is the Lord himself. God doesn't want our hands involved in this business at all. That would ruin. He doesn't want our, our works. He doesn't need all that. That would ruin everything. You know, one of the biggest obstacles in presenting the gospel to people is they think they can save themselves, right? They think they can contribute to their salvation. There's something they can do. There's something they must do. Mike talked about that this morning. Everybody thinks they're good or they think they're doing things that are good enough to please God, but God doesn't want all that. He's the one that does the work. What a crazy thought to think that we can contribute to our own salvation from sin. It's, It's a ridiculous idea. No, it says that we're circumcised in him with the circumcision made without hands, right? No human element involved. I love the way it says that because it cannot be improved upon. It's the work of God. I like the song we see in Complete in Thee because it says, Complete in thee, no work of mine may take, dear Lord, the place of thine, right? It's not by our work. He says, it goes on to say, Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and I am now complete in thee. So it's the, it's the work of Christ in our lives, not anything we can contribute. I may have told you this before. I love the way my brother-in-law, uh, Megan's father, talks about salvation. And I've, I've tried to imitate what he says here. When he talks about the Lord, when he talks about salvation, he, he doesn't say, you know how we say, I was saved. You know, I, I'm, that person's saved. That person was saved. He always says it like this, the Lord saved me. You know what I'm talking about, Megan. He says, the Lord saved that individual. 
And I thought, you know, wait a minute. When I heard him say that the first time and ever since, I thought, well, that puts a different spin on everything. The way we say it and the way he says it are two different ways. He's, he's giving the credit to God. The Lord saved that person. I try to, I try to say it that way. Um, and no uncertain terms does the Lord get the, he gets the glory for it when you say it that way. It's the Lord's work in him and his alone. So what does this spiritual circumcision accomplish? Well, look at verse 11. It says it accomplishes, according to the end of the verse, the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what is the body of flesh? Well, he's not talking about our physical body. This is a spiritual thing we're talking about here. The body of flesh is the old nature. It's who we were in Adam before we were saved, before we came to know Christ, before the Lord saved us. Romans 6, 6 calls this the body of sin, that old nature. Romans 7:24 calls it the body of this death. The bent of our heart before we came to know Christ was towards sin and sin only. We never had any inclination toward God at all. We were under the power, under the dominion of sin. No inclination towards Christ. But by this circumcision of Christ, we're freed from the dominating influence of sin. That's what he means when he says the, re- the removal of the body of flesh. It means stripping off or putting off. It's because Christ died on the cross and it, and it applied to us in salvation, that's responsible for, for putting off from us from being under the dominion and power of sin. That's spiritual circumcision. We, look at Colossians 1.21. This is how we were before we were saved. It says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now he's reconciled you to Christ. So because of Christ's circumcision, we are a new creation in Christ. We're new people in Christ. It doesn't mean that we're sinless, because as long as we live in these bodies, the, the possibility of sin is going to be there. And probability of sin is going to be there it's because we carry these bodies of death around that we have this but god has given us power through christ to overcome this and that's why passages like colossians 3 5 later on we will see it says to put sin to death to kill sin because we we can do that now because we're in christ outside of christ that possibility never existed but in christ now it does and so i would say this if there is a, a new testament counterpart to physical circumcision in the old testament it is spiritual circumcision in the New Testament where Christ, because of his death, saves us and, and changes our heart and life. Well, not only do we see that there's spiritual fullness in Christ and spiritual circumcision in Christ, but also there is spiritual life in Christ. Verse 12, in the beginning of verse 13, it says this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and in the, the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. So there is spiritual life in Christ. Now, the, it says here, have been, having been buried with him in baptism. The question is here, what does Paul mean when he says baptism? Well, there are many who think that baptism in the New Testament is the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament circumcision. They see that as, as the counterpart to it. Circumcision was the Old Testament rite which Israelites were brought into the covenant relationship with God. And now baptism replaces that and brings us into a new covenant relationship with God in these days. And let me give you an example of this. William Hendrickson, who's a New Testament commentator and a good commentator, holds this view. He says, uh, he says this about Colossians 2.12. Listen to this. this. The definite implication, therefore, is that baptism has taken the place of circumcision. And that's what they say. Hence, what is said with reference to circumcision in Romans 4.11 as being a sign 
and a seal holds, holds also for baptism. In the Colossian context, baptism is specifically a sign and a seal of union with Christ, of entrance into his covenant, of incorporation into Christ's body, the church. So in other words, just like physical circumcision was a sign of the old covenant, so now baptism is a sign of the new covenant. But that sounds all well and good, right? But let me show you what he's leading to. Henderson, again, is quoting from uh, the form. Listen to this. He's quoting from the form for the baptism of infants in the Psalter hymnal of the Christian Reformed Church. He says this. Since then, baptism has come in the place of circumcision. The children should be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of his new covenant. What's he saying? He's saying we should sprinkle children and baptize them, infants, to get them into the covenant. So they can receive the kind of sign of the covenant. That's what he's leading to. That's why those guys say baptism is the, is the new sign of the covenant in the New Testament. Because now we, we should baptize children. We should baptize babies and infants so they can enter into the covenant. That's why they say that. Well, you know, I hate, I don't like to argue with my brothers in Christ, but I have to disagree with that. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I don't believe there's a preparatory step in salvation. We do this. God sets us aside, and one day, then he saves us. I don't think that's how it works. We enter into God's kingdom when we're born again. When he saves us from our sins, then we come into the kingdom of God. And by the way, people in the, Old, in the New Testament were baptized after they were saved, not before that. If, I, if we thought that, our church would be baptizing infants right now, if we, if we held to that view. Furthermore, the Catholics also baptize babies for a different reason than, than the Christian Reformed people or others, though. Different reason. They say that grace is dispensed to the baby at baptism, which kind of sets him on the road to salvation if he follows the rules of the Catholic Church and kind of stays in line with all that. And so they teach as well, but none of this is the biblical teaching. As I said earlier, the, the New Testament counterpart to physical circumcision is spiritual circumcision, not baptism. So again, what does Paul mean when he says, having been buried with him in baptism? Is he talking about baptismal regeneration? In other words, we're saved through baptism? As we enter the waters of baptism, we're saved, and we come to know Christ then? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Colossians tell, if, if Colossians teaches one thing at all, it teaches this. Salvation is only in, in and only through one person. That's Christ, right? Nothing else, no works added. Uh, there's nothing else that goes along with it. It's only about, about Christ. And I don't think Paul would talk about the merits of Christ over and over again and then suddenly change and put the ball in our court and say, oh, wait a minute, you've got to do something too. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. He's talking about things that are spiritual. It can't be done with human hands. It can't be done by humans. And so it's not talking about baptismal regeneration. So what is he saying? Well, I, I believe seriously that Colossians 2, and, and I'm not the only one that believes this. Apparently everybody else does too, is a parallel passage to Romans chapter 6. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, and let's read verses 3 and 4, and just keep your finger in there. Romans 6, 3 and 4. <clears throat> he says here, Paul does, he says, or, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We've been baptized into Christ. In other words, we've been placed into Christ as believers. 
We've been identified with Christ. We're in union with Christ. And he's talking about a spiritual baptism, not a water baptism here. And so he says this. It's like Galatians 3.27. Keep your hands in Romans 6. says, all of, you were baptized into Christ, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And so it's the same idea. Now, this is hard to grasp. I realize that, this understanding of that we're, we've entered into Christ's death and resurrection. But that's what the Scripture teaches in Romans chapter 6. And, of course, we know that, that water baptism is public testimony to that teaching, right? It's public testimony to the fact that we have been saved and that we're, we've entered into his death and, and burial and resurrection. And by the way, water baptism in the New Testament is always closely associated with salvation. It is not salvation, but it's always closely associated with it. And do you know in the New Testament times, there was no such thing as an unbaptized believer? Everybody took it for granted that everybody had been baptized after their salvation. Now, nowadays, it's not like that. A lot of believers have, that know Christ have not been baptized. But they were baptized right on the hills of their salvation experience back in that day. No waiting period. Now, today I, know, I realize we have problems because we often wait to see, will that person understand what they did in the matter of salvation? Is their salvation genuine? We'll give them time so we don't want them to get baptized and then, and then confirm them in their unbelief that they truly aren't believers. So there's this discussion that goes on about that. Do they understand what all this means? That's a, another discussion for another time. But when you think of your baptism, think of your it should remind you of your salvation. I was saved, and that water baptism pictures that. I was saved by the grace of Christ. They're closely associated with one another. Well, he says that we're buried with him in baptism. And this is a truth that is, is not normally talked about, but it's discussed here, that we believers have been identified with Christ's burial, his death, his resurrection. Now, I know in Colossians 2, some argue, and they say, well, it talks about the burial in, in, in Colossians 2, but not a death. But it talks about a resurrection as well. I hardly think Paul's talking about burial without talking it without also including death. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's talking about the death, burial, and resurrection there. And so what does it all mean? Well, look at Romans 6, 5, and 6. What does all this have to do with anything? Romans 6, 5, and 6. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self is cru was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. It means, all this means we're dead to sin. That's what it means. It means that no, we're no longer slaves to sin. When Christ on the cross, our old nature was dealt a severe blow. Now let me just say a word about this. What has been shattered in, in, in all this is not the presence of sin. Sin is always going to be here. But the mastery of sin has been shattered in your life. The power of sin has been broken in your life. That's what he's talking about. He's speaking of the dominion of sin. He's not talking about sinless perfection. You're not going to be sinlessly perfect the rest of your life because you're a saved individual now. But the mastery of sin has been broken. You now have a different disposition towards sin. You now have a different desire towards sin. You desire to please God, right? Even though sin is is always snapping at your heels. You've got a desire to please God and a different master, and it's Christ. So we're now slaves of Christ, right, instead of slaves of sin. Romans 6, 1 to 3 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. How shall we who, are who have died to sin still live in it? 
Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So he makes it plain. He says, we've been baptized into his death. We've been, we're, we're dead to that old way of living. Or 2 Corinthians 5 puts it, the old has gone away and the new has come. We're now new creation in Christ. So the question to ask yourself is this, does my life show now that I'm dead to sin, that I'm no longer living that old lifestyle, that I'm totally different? I'm not under the domination of sin. Sin's not ruling my life. Yeah, it's, it's, trying to, it's, it's coming after me. It's not ruling my life. If, you're, if, you're, if, you, if you feel like there's a doubt there, you need to examine yourself whether you're in the faith or not. Not only is death and burial involved, but also resurrection. He says in Colossians 2.12, he says, In which you were also raised up with him. You were also raised up with Christ. It's not only death to the old life, but there's, there's new life in Christ now. New life in Christ. Romans 6, 5 again. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And this is the work that God has done in us. God has done this work. He's raised us up. Ephesians 2, 6. God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And how did all this come about? Colossians 2, 12. It says it came about through faith. And the working of God, who raised him from the dead. It came about through faith in the working of God. One commentator said, Faith is the critical, necessary, and proper response to God's converting grace. And the object of this faith is, is the working of God. It's God who's doing the work. Once again, no human hands involved. God is doing the work. We place our faith in the supernatural power of God. That word working is from the word energy, literally. It's the supernatural energy of God that we're trusting in. That supernatural energy was so strong and powerful that even, Colossians 2.12, it raised Christ from the dead. Now, that's power, isn't it? To be able to raise someone from the dead is great power, and that's what God did. It's through the working of God. He continues this thought in verse 13. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions, the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He's talking about the past before they came to Christ. He says they were dead. They were dead in their transgressions, spiritually dead. Not an ounce of life in them at all. Now, a lot of people want to think that there's some life in a person, some spiritual life when he's born, that he has this spark of divinity in him, that there's something in him that, can re that has the possibility of responding to God. They like to think that. But a spirit, what, is, what can a spiritually dead man do? Do nothing at all, right? He has no ability, no power to do anything. He's unable to do anything. He cannot turn to Christ on his own initiative because by his own power, somehow turn to Christ. He can't do it. He doesn't have that ability. He has no inclination to God. He's dead in his transgressions. And transgressions are deliberate acts of disobedience. They're rebellion against God. These are people who have lived in rebellion toward God. And also, in the uncircumcision of their flesh, he says, he's talking about the fact they're Gentiles. They're outside the covenant of Israel. They're Gentiles. And you know what Ephesians 2.12 says about Gentiles? It says, Remember that you Gentiles were formerly separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. Wow, that's a bleak situation, isn't it? The Gentiles were faced with. No hope at all without God. No, no hope at all in, in Christ. Nothing. They were rebelling against God. But, he doesn't leave us hanging that he, there. He says that God has raised us up, raised the Colossian believers up to new life in Christ. He's given them new life. 
And this is done in union with Christ, it says in verse 12. It's, it's, it's in him. It's with him. It's through him, right? Every believer in Christ who was formerly dead in their sins and transgressions, but God has raised all of us up to new life in Christ. And this is what God is in the business of doing, making dead sinners live, right? He makes us alive in Christ. So there is spiritual life in Christ. Fourthly, there is spiritual freedom in Christ. Spiritual freedom in Christ. The end of verse 13 and 14, he says, the end of verse 13, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Freedom in Christ. What do I mean when I say freedom in Christ, spiritual freedom? I mean he's forgiven us of our sins. Forgiven us of our sins. Now, this is a great thought to, to sit and meditate on. For, think about this for a minute. You've been forgiven of all your sins. Think of, all, think of your lifestyle and how you lived all your life. Think about that. And think about the fact that Christ has forgiven you of all of that. There's several things to take note of here. First of all, this happened in the past, God's forgiveness. It says he has, it says having forgiven us, referring to the past. He's forgiven us of all of our sins, all of us in here. No one can take that away from you. That's an established fact. It's something that you always have in your possession, something you can always hope in. You might be discouraged looking at your life right now and say, wow, I don't feel like I'm living like I should right now, but always take hope in this, that God has forgiven you, if you know him, of all your sins. That's something you can never, you can never trade away. You know, the Puritans were a godly group of people back in their day. But they had a, there was one problem they had, and that was they were highly introspective. They always looked inside, and they saw corruption constantly in their lives. And they, and they, they thought, wow, I'm such a sinful person. That's good on the one hand. On the other hand, you can go overboard with it and take it too far and never get past that. And so one of the things you want to do is realize that you've been forgiven of your sins and, take, and rejoice in that. Always rejoice in that. And then secondly, note that God's forgiveness is a gracious gift. It's a gracious gift. This word forgiveness, this particular word forgiven used in verse uh, uh, 13 here, is a word that has the idea of God giving freely or graciously as a favor to people. It's got the idea of God's free grace inherent in the word itself. And that is a tremendous thing. That, and that implies two things to us. First of all, God's forgiveness is unmerited. We can't merit his grace by anything we can do, as the chapter is taught all along here. can't merit what God has done. can't do anything good enough to achieve the grace of God. It won't happen. It can't happen. And then also it shows us that God delights in showing grace. He delights in showing his grace. His forgiveness is a gracious gift to us. God delights in saving people from their sin. He delights to extend his grace to people. He delights in saving them purely by his own merit, his own grace. And then thirdly, note that God's forgiveness pertains to all believers. I like this here. It says at the end of verse verse 13, having forgiven us all our transgressions, right? He's forgiven all believers. Notice the the change of the word from you to us. Did you see that in the the verses? Look at verse 10. He's he's using the word you. In him you have been made complete. Verse 11. In him you were also circumcised. You Colossians. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions. Look at the end of verse 13. Having forgiven us. Wait a minute. Verse 14. He says, 
uh, he's canceled out the certi certificate of death, death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. Wait a minute, he changed from you to us in these verses here. And I, I don't know, this is my thought. <laughs> I think when Paul got here and he says, having forgiven us all our transgressions, I tend to think he thought about his own life. And he said, wait a minute, God's forgiving all of us, including the Apostle Paul, of all our, of all of our transgressions. Not just you, Colossians, but oh yeah, he forgave me as well, the Apostle Paul. And, you, and Paul had every reason to think, to think that way. You know why? Every time Paul thought about his sins, he probably thought about this. I persecuted the church of God. I, I, I sought to kill Christians. I stood there when Stephen was being stoned, and I gave approval to it. I held their coats and watched over that. I've got much to be grateful for because God even saves what? The chief of sinners, right? Paul said he was foremost. He was chief. And so I think that Paul was thinking about himself in here as well. He's, he's forgiven us. Even me, the Apostle Paul, who did such horrible things and was on that mission to destroy Christians when God saved me on the road to Damascus. So it pertains to all believers, God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness, fourthly, pertains to all sins. Verse 13, he's forgiven us all our transgressions. No transgression under overlook. No rebellion. No act of rebellion. None are forgotten before God. None are too great to forgive. Some people think they can't be forgiven of their sins because they've committed too many sins against God. They're too big. They're too bad. God's not able to, to cover all those. He's too holy. He can't forgive all that. But God, on the other hand, conversely, does forgive all of our sins, right? All of our transgressions, no matter how great they are, no matter how bad they are, that's what he does. Like I said, he's in the business of making dead sinners live. And verse 14 continues the thought of forgiveness. He says here, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's nailed on to the cross. What in the world does all that mean? <laughs> Look at that verse and you shake your head, right? <laughs> certificate of indebtedness refers to an IOU, something that you owe someone, a note that acknowledges the obligation to pay a debt. Maybe you've signed one in your life. You have probably signed one in your life. You've got yourself in debt somehow and you've said, I owe you this money and maybe it's going to take me if you have a house, maybe it's going to take you 20 or 25 or 30 years or 40 years or 100 years because you refinance it five times to pay it off, right? You have this IOU on your hands that you can't and maybe never can pay it. And that's what it's talking about there. And this certificate consists of decrees against us. The decrees against us probably has a reference to the law of Moses, although many would dispute that, just so you'll know. Another discussion about that. Probably the law of Moses, which... Is it, it's because we violated God's commands in his word. We can't repay that debt to him. What does it say in Galatians 3.10? It says the law here in, in, in uh, Colossians is hostile to us. Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. The person who doesn't do the law to its fullest extent is cursed by God. He's condemned, right? He's condemned by God. So we're all under this curse. We're condemned by the law. But God has forgiven us all this, and we're free from that debt. We owe God a, a great debt, a debt of, of spiritual bankruptcy. We was so high we can never even begin to repay it. It was outrageous debt. And yet God has, says here in, in Colossians, he has taken it out of the way. Christ has, having nailed it to us to the cross. In other words, he's wiped the debt out. In a word, he's, he's erased the debt. 
He has given us a, a, a wiped the slate clean and given us a fresh start in life. That's what he's done. Since Christ was nailed to the cross, our debt to God has been completely forgiven. So we owed a debt. We couldn't pay it. Christ took our place on the cross and paid it for us, right? So there's spiritual freedom in Christ. And then finally, in verse 15, there's spiritual triumph in Christ. There's spiritual triumph in Christ. It says here, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. Who are the rulers and authorities? Well, we've seen that before in Colossians, right? Colossians 1.16, for example. And we, we talked about that back then, that they were the evil angels, state, satanic forces, satanic hosts. They're the rulers and authorities. They're categories of, of hosts that Satan has under him. And it says here, the Lord has disarmed those satanic hosts. That word is used again, by the way, in Colossians 3.9. It means to put off as you would put aside a garment. Here's what happened. On the cross, Christ divested himself of the evil powers which had engaged him in a constant struggle in his ministry. They had been against him, the evil powers, the evil satanic forces had been against him, had been opposed to him in many different ways. Pharisees, I believe, were used by Satan and, and, and others. You remember Satan tempted Christ in Luke 4, right? Right off the bat, he's fasted for 40 days, he's inaugurating his ministry, and right off the bat, Satan comes after him. And then what about in Matthew 16? Who does, who does Satan use in Matthew 16? He uses the, the, the apostle Peter. The Lord says, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter says, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. In fact, he says, God forbid. God would never let this happen to you. You're going to the cross? God forbid. And what does Christ say to him? You know what? This, you guys know it, right? Get behind me, Satan. You don't savor the things that are of men, but those that be of you don't savor the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And so Satan had all, and his forces had always come after the Lord in his ministry in many ways. And here at the cross, the Lord defeats the evil angels. It says he made a public display of them. In other words, the cross was the place where the Lord exposed evil angels to public disgrace. He humiliated them publicly. Now, there's no way any of us can really understand this fully. It's what the, it's what the text says, though. It says, having triumphed, triumphed over them through him, Christ led in triumph. The idea is of a, mil, a victorious military leader who leads captives in a war in triumph, in a triumphal procession. He leads the captives of war through the city. He's celebrating his victory in this way, showing that he's won this victory. He's got the right to, to, to celebrate now. And this is an illustration of what Christ did to the host of Satan at the cross. His death meant that believers would be freed from Satan's grip on them. From then on, and so he conquered. He conquered them in this way, and so when we're when Christ saves us from our sins, we're transferred from the kingdom of Satan, right, to the kingdom of God's dear Son, Christ. He's defeated Satan. So the cross was not a defeat for Christ, although some may have thought it was going to be. It was a victory for him, a complete victory in every way. So when we think of our salvation, we realize that many things took place. In our salvation, think about this, all the things that took place in your salvation, according to these verses here, 9 through 15. We're made full in Christ. We have all we need for life and godliness. We have all we need to serve God. We're sufficient in Christ alone. We received a spiritual circumcision. We were raised from a spiritually dead condition to new life in Christ. No longer spiritually dead, now we have life, true life in us to live for him. 
We were graciously granted freedom from sin, <clears throat> forgiven us of, of all our sin. We were freed from Satan's power over us. All of this happened, as the text says, through Christ, in Christ, with Christ, all in connection with him and union with him. And so there would be no reason for the Colossian believers ever to consider another philosophy, Colossians 2.8, to come through that would take them away from Christ. What, what could they offer? What could another religion offer that would be better than this? Nothing at all. It would be impossible. No reason to ever think to go outside of, Christ, outside of the teaching of, of Christ. This teaching was not according to Christ, it says in Philippians 2.8. So why go there? And maybe tonight you're here and you don't know all this. This is not true of your life. You, haven't, you don't see the power of sin broken in your life. You don't see a change in your life. You don't see anything different now. Well, maybe it's time for you to consider that you're not, you're not in Christ and that you need to look and, and realize, I need, I need Christ. I need to come to him with my sin. He'll, he'll forgive all my transgressions, it says, if I'll come to him. You know, there was a, one point in the ministry of Christ where many disciples, not the 12, many disciples were leaving Christ and going their own way. They didn't like what he had to say. It was difficult to take in, to understand. So they went their own way. They left him. And he said to the, the 12, he said to them, will you also go away? You 12, will you also leave me? And I love Peter's answer. The same guy that said the wrong answer in Matthew 16. I love Peter's answer. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? There is nowhere else to go. To a teaching that's not according to Christ? To someone who's not Christ to follow him? There is nowhere else to go. And so Paul says to the Colossian believers, everything that happens in your life happens in Christ. He's your only hope. Let's thank God for that tonight as we, as we close out. Lord, you thank you for this time together. And for your word, we just pray that uh, we'll understand and we'll get in our hearts and minds that we are in union with Christ. And whatever else happens in our life, that we're always with him that uh, no matter what happens, that we're always united with him. We're so grateful for that. We pray for those tonight who may not know you tonight. You'll draw them to yourself to come to the salvation in Christ. We just praise in Christ's name. Amen.